Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and tonight we are going to be talking a little bit about roleplay. Specifically, a topic that I want to address tonight is charisma, the ways in which people get it wrong, why they get it wrong, uh, what's to be done about it, and how you can take... Uh, other ability scores and uh, make them as important as charisma seems to be in roleplay situations. Now, one thing that I want to go ahead and say right off the bat, there are going to be a lot of what you might call cold takes in this particular uh, episode that I'm doing here. I'm not giving you guys a lot of new information, at least as far as I've seen. There are are a lot of people who've covered this topic. Um, These are just my thoughts, some of my musings on why this issue persists, what can be done about it, uh, you know, why it's an issue, and, uh, you know, just, again, ways that you can make sure that everyone at the table is having fun is feeling like they're contributing to every facet of the game. So, take a sip from my whiskey here as I uh, go ahead and and begin talking a little bit about charisma and roleplay and ways in which that I think, as the title of this episode suggests, charisma is overrated. So, I've taken some notes here. Because uh, I find that I work better with notes, generally, when it's a solo episode. I get less ranty. So, I've kind of mapped out my positions on all of this. Uh, and the problem that we run into, and again, the uh, cold take alert. Everyone put on your jackets, grab some mittens, and uh, get the hot cocoa ready, because uh, cold take incoming. Charisma is not mind control, but it's treated like mind control. Oftentimes, a particularly good deception or persuasion check will get better results than any of the enchantment spells uh, that actually impose the charmed effect on your target or, you know, actually do allow you to control another um, character. Because usually it's a monster. Hopefully it's always a monster because mind controlling another person's character is kind of a a no-go as far as uh, just 
you know, general role-playing rules are considered. Uh, but a lot of times a deception check or a persuasion check will be treated with uh, equal or greater value as one of those spells uh, without the cost of a spell slot. Perfect example of this. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Dominate Person is a 5th fifth le fifth level spell. Fairly high level spell there. One that, uh, you know, half casters are not going to really get access to for a while. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a semi scarce resource. So casting, uh, you know, dominate person has some cost associated with it. Uh, if nothing else, that's another fireball you can't throw out, depending on your class. Um, and a lot of times, you know. <laughs> A lot, of, a lot of DMs, a lot of inexperienced DMs will basically just give you Dominate Person for free if you roll a 20 on a Persuasion or Deception check, um, which is a problem. Um, along with that, Charisma-based characters have a tendency to take the spotlight, to monopolize game time, um, which is a result of the kinds of players who are drawn to charisma-based characters. And again, I just want to throw this out here. I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus here because I consider myself to be, uh, you know, in this category. I very much like to roleplay. I very much like to embody my character, uh, you know, be kind of an actor. We'll talk a little bit about the actor role uh, as... It pertains to the, the types of players uh, that, that end up taking up this hobby or, you know, end up developing at the table. Um, and, and, and how to get around some of that stuff. And the other problems that I have here, uh, non-charisma classes or classes that don't rely heavily on charisma, oftentimes just end up stacking dice during the roleplay sections. And I don't think that's good at all. That's... I like every character to contribute in every part of the adventure. Now, that's not going to play out like every single player is going to enjoy every section of the adventure, but they'll enjoy it a lot more if their character can contribute something meaningful than if they just have to sit back and let the bard or the paladin negotiate while they build a dice tower. And going along with, you know, some of the themes here, with charisma being treated like mind controls a lot, or like mind control, a lot of skill checks uh, that result in a natural 20 are treated uh, like they break reality. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about natural 20s and skill checks and how social encounters have a tendency to kind of break the tone, break the verisimilitude, the uh, immersion of role-playing. So that's a general overview of what we're going to cover. And there's going to be a lot of looks specifically at the player's handbook. So what I am going to do first, before we go over to some screen share and take a look at some of the stuff that the player's handbook has to say, I, I want to talk a little bit about charisma-based characters and the players who play them and where problems come in and, and why this ends up being a problem at so many tables these days. 
And the best place to begin here is with a, uh, a little bit of a story. There, uh, there, there's a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who played in one of my games at one point. Uh, I, it was her first time, you know, playing D&D. And like a lot of people out there, a lot of her conception or perception of what D&D was came from the internet. Specifically, D&D memes. And you find this a lot with modern uh, players. Players who are like just now getting into D&D. Somehow I missed this. And I very much came up in like D&D meme culture. That was very much my era. I completely missed it. I, I, I have this weird tendency to go about things the old-fashioned way. Go figure. I don't know. I, let me put it this way. I tried out D&D because I was into comic books and video games and fantasy literature. And because I checked those boxes and because I was, uh, you know, interested in theater and enjoyed acting uh, in high school, basically it was expected of me to, to be into D&D. &D. And so at some point I figured, you know, why not give it a go? It seems like it's right up my alley. And so I gave it a go, and it was, in fact, directly up my alley. That's not the way a lot of people get into D&D &D now. Several of the people who I gamed with early on got into it because of Critical Role, or because of the internet. And part of, you know, what goes along with the, the Critical Role crowd in a lot of ways is the the meme culture around role-playing games and this is this is both a good thing and a bad thing i'm gonna adjust my camera here real quick the 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 memes about D, D definitely you know in some cases are hilarious uh they get people you know wondering what's this D, D thing that everyone's going crazy about on reddit You know what are what are all these gaming stories? What what is this thing? What's this this weird sitting around a table, acting things out thing that that's going on? And then you've got shows like The Big Bang Theory who are you know showing actual D and D sessions. Uh, Stranger Things, another big one. You know this is what a D and D session looks like. And this is you know both positive and negative. Uh, for me, you know, positive, it's showing the hobby to a lot of people. Negative, I feel like D&D is at its best when there's this aura of mystery to it. When I was getting into D&D, I didn't know anything about it. One of the first conversations I remember having about D&D, I was at a friend's birthday party. And, like, one of our, a friend of a friend, this, this girl that I barely knew, was talking about it. And talking about how her dad was a dungeon master. It's like, oh yeah, Dad's a dungeon master. Dad's been playing since the 80s. And the, the way that it was put out there, I thought like a dungeon master was a rank you had to attain. I thought there was some kind of... I thought it was like being a black belt in, you know, your martial art of choice. I thought there was this long journey and process that you had to go through to become a dungeon master. I didn't realize you just had to buy a book. 
or say, yes, I'll run the game and then buy a book. D&D was this big mysterious thing. When I was starting, I was like, well, I don't know if I can dungeon master. I don't know if I'm qualified for that. Turns out no one's qual... Well, let me put that another way. Turns out everyone's qualified for it, for the most part. There's no barrier to entry. But there was this aura of mystery around it. And that aura of mystery was made very palpable by my mom telling me she didn't want me playing the devil's game, essentially. Mom didn't really go for any of the, like, you know, Harry Potter is satanic things, but for some reason, D&D really bothered her, and the fact that I wanted to play D&D really bothered her. All that aside, though, the pop culture exposure of D&D has demystified a lot of it. And not only has it demystified a lot of it, it's turned it into a joke in a lot of ways. And not just, oh, you're a nerd, you play D&D. It's turned it into a joke amongst D&D players. And the, the memes that have popped up because of this are things like, you can, out of nowhere, apropos of nothing, instead of fighting a dragon, roll your dice, and if the 20 pops up and you have enough of a bonus to your charisma... Instead of fighting the dragon, you and the dragon are now uh, married. And you go on to, like, give birth to Dragonborn and all kinds of nonsense. And the, the natural 20, this, this number on this dice is magical and mystical. And a 20 on a 20-sided dice uh, casts some kind of spell that makes the rest of the rules, mechanics, reality, logic itself completely subservient to this number on this dice. And I believe that up until, like, I don't know, two years ago, maybe. Maybe even, like, a year and a half ago. That, you know, a, a natural 20 in any context meant basically uh, the player's wildest dreams came true almost like voting for pedro um and to be perfectly honest that's just not the case that's not that's not a good way to play the game because you're going to frustrate yourself as the dungeon master you're going to give a player who may be inclined to take a mile if given an inch a whole bunch of room to kind of, you know, dominate the game and, and make it their show rather than everyone at the table show. And you're going to make players upset that this one player who's obscenely lucky all the time is basically dictating our futures and dictating what we do and don't get to do. But back to the story about this, this friend of mine, you know, she got into D&D through, you know, meme culture and, and partly through me saying, hey, do you want to play this game? You know, I'm, I'm just moved to town. I want to run D&D. Do you want to do you want to play a D&D game? But her conception of charisma was basically that it was the most important stat in the game. Um, essentially, 
her her view of charisma was it was a skip content button activated by a high enough roll of the dice. And this is I I don't want to make it sound like I'm bashing this player or saying, you know, ah, she needs to read her book or something like that, because I'm not. Because she's not the only one who went through something like this. I went through something like this. The the culture of memes around Dungeons and Dragons perpetuates this myth. Perpetuates this idea that the magic math rock is uh, all-knowing and all-powerful. And if it says, you get to bed a dragon, then by thunder you get to bed that dragon. The guy behind the uh, little cardboard partition uh, who you know, spent time prepping this adventure, his opinion doesn't matter, Math Rock says 20. So, yeah. That, that's the perception. Now, why is that the perception? We've already mentioned memes. Uh, but Luke Hart, when he was on the show last time, he gave a really good kind of breakdown of the problem with these memes and these, these game stories that you see online all the time. The, the memes and the stories that you see, they come from one perspective. And that perspective is pretty much universally one player. One player saying, hey guys, check out this cool thing I did. I got to do. What you don't hear about is the player on the other side who really wanted to fight that dragon. You know, he's a fighter. He's a, he's a battle master fighter. He gets, by thunder, he gets four attacks per round uh, at this level. And, you know, he really wanted to deal some damage. He, he wanted to kick some ass. That's what he was here for. He had a rough day at work, and he, he really just wants to run in with his uh, with his sword and board and just, you know, wreck face on this dragon and get some gold and get a nice new sword. And he didn't get to do that because uh, Jekyll the Jokester, uh, the, uh, the 15th level bard, rolled high enough on his dice that now uh, he's married to that dragon, and they are living happily ever after. Uh, and this kind of... Again, this is a caricature. It's, it's, this is a meme in, in of itself, the horny bard. But this speaks to a lot of the problems with charisma-based characters and the kinds of players who are drawn to them. The Horny Bard is just one example of this. It's the most common example, but it's just one example. Other examples are the uh, the kind of emo scene kid warlock, usually a tiefling. Uh, very edgy. Very brooding, very dark. Someone who has watched The Crow a few too many times. Uh, the Shonen Paladin. And for those of you who don't know anime, what I mean is the, the character who for all intents and purposes, is Goku in plate mail. Uh, they are ultra-powerful, and they uh, like to give long, drawn-out speeches uh, before combat starts or in the place of combat. Um, you know, like, the, they are the paragon of all paragons. 
and their crusade is righteous, and they will smite ye with their mighty sword, and just on and on, and the rogue is like, I just want to backstab someone. Can, can we just... <clears throat> can we just gack this guy and be done with it? The swashbuckling rogue is another example. The guy who, uh, you know, really thinks he's a Nego Montoya, and you killed his father. Uh, you know, that's another example. There are all kinds of different character types, all that usually share this high charisma that like to hijack the game, like to hijack the spotlight, make it about them. Sometimes it's malicious. Oftentimes, I honestly don't think it is malicious, but this is what ends up happening. Now, there's one charisma class that I'm not going to talk about tonight, and that's the sorcerer. And that's because people hate sorcerers. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's it's become a joke on the D&D subreddit about how much people hate sorcerers. Uh, to the point where talking about hating sorcerers is a meme in and of itself. Uh, but they don't really fall into this category because people don't really play sorcerers. Uh, they're kind of superfluous and I wouldn't be surprised if they disappear at some point. So that's why I'm not talking about sorcerers. But anyway, this kind of player that ends up in this role, they usually fit the actor role, which in uh, Running the Game number 11, Matt Colville talks about different kinds of players. And I didn't, I, I've referenced this video several times over the course of doing this show. And I have heard Matt Col I've watched this video like five times, and I've heard Matt Colville mention this guy's name, but it never stuck with me until now. This list of player types actually comes from a guy named Robin Laws who invented the gumshoe system. And one of Robin's character types is called the actor. And this is very much where I myself feel like I fit as far as what kind of player I am. There are other aspects of my play style. Um, I'm, again, that's a whole stream in and of itself, I think. Talking about uh, character types or player types and how, you know, multiple types can mix into one character. But that's a whole tangent. It's, it's almost like the uh, Enneagram, in a way. But I very much kind of fit the actor role in that I love to embody my character. I usually create an elaborate backstory for them, and I like to, in the time that we're playing, feel as if I'm embodying a certain character uh, who is not myself during that time. I like to speak in a unique voice. Um, I even do this at convention games. I have to stop myself in convention games where there's not really a lot of role play from doing that. I have to minimize that a little bit because there's not time for it. So that's where I fit. Um, and so I say a lot of this as kind of, you know, self-examination, but also um, from behind the screen as a DM. For all the good that these characters provide, you know, they, they make immersion so easy. Role-playing with them as a dungeon master is great. 
They usually give you a lot to work with as far as backstory goes. Uh, but there are some pitfalls of being the actor. One of them is that you usually see the spotlight as yours. Uh, because you're the one who is first to talk in character, react as your character would react. Usually, you know, whether it's intentional or not, that spotlight usually feels like it's your territory. Um, another pitfall is that you see the dice as your enemy. And if they don't say exactly what you want them to say, you get mad. Um, oftentimes, actors can be abusers of the rule of cool. They will, you know, think of something that sounds awesome in their head. And uh, they'll want it to play out exactly that way. And, and usually they'll push back with, but it would be really awesome if the, the GM kind of resists. They have a tendency to be oblivious to other players at the table and what they want to do at a given time because their character is so focused on what they want. I've been guilty of this before. Uh, when Austin Acoff was on the show, we talked a lot about the time where uh, Cromwell, my favorite character, my alter ego, if you will, caused basically a giant battle because he was gung-ho to betray the drow. Uh, that was me kind of overlooking the desires of the other players at the table and overlooking the obvious pitfalls that Muhammad, our GM, had placed in front of us. Uh, so that, that one was on me. That was my fault. Uh, and then the, the kind of last point to talk about here is oftentimes these players can begin to think of themselves as the main character. And this is an extension of, you know, every every actor, no matter what their part, you know, you think about your motivation, you think about what you want, and that's how you get authentic performances, is understanding who you are and what you want and how you're going to get it in each scene, knowing your objective. Broadly speaking, I'm not an acting coach. Um, but whether or not you realize this, in a role-playing game where the objective is not to put on a performance where you have a script and you know kind of where things are going, and doing that is, you know, good acting. In a role-playing game, it's about everyone at the table having fun. And if you push that too far, you can begin to override other people's experience at the table. And sometimes you can even begin to think of yourself as kind of a superior player and by extension a superior character to the others because you have the most in-depth backstory. You're the most engaged when it comes to role-playing, on and on, on down the line. Again, a lot of these start in either an ignorant position or a position of, uh, you know, being well-meaning. You want to be engaged with the game. This is how you interface with the game. This is how you have your fun. And then it can turn into something a little bit more... Not toxic, but... You know, something that diminishes other players at the table. Something that definitely uh, detracts from other people's fun. So, 
if you find yourself being one of these players who is kind of, you know, whether you mean to or not obsessed with your own spotlight, be very aware that there are other people at the table, especially if you're in a large group. Uh, just, just kind of be cognizant that other people are there to have fun too. And it's not, you know, you're not there just for your own entertainment. You're there to have fun with your friends. Um, and GMs, you need to know kind of when to let the rubber band snap a little bit here. You need to know when to pull back, when to, you know, when to say enough's enough. One of the best ways to do this is to put hard limits on, you know, character speechifying. If a character is just kind of going, or a player is just going on and on and on, and, you know, they've got a response or a quip for everything that happens, you've got to just drop, drop the, drop the hammer, drop the gates, say, all right, cool it. You're, you're good. You need to, especially when it comes to them kind of, you know, treading over other players at the table if you notice consistently and and it's your job to notice these things as the dungeon master and again this is something i need to work on too and it's damn hard to do over zoom i'll tell you that much uh this is so much easier in person but if you're consistently noticing that in you know a role play situation one player will begin to speak and then the actor player will just kind of steamroll them. You need to you need to nip that in the bud if it starts to become a regular thing. If if the actor character is always cutting people off before they can start speaking, you need to pull them aside, do it in private first, but say, hey, you know, every time you start up. Uh, you're cutting someone off. Look around the table before you launch into your whole uh, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die speech. Make sure uh, that other people get the chance. Especially, you know, if it looks like every time they start speaking players start rolling their eyes or, you know, immediately are like, eh, let's see how high I can get the dice tower before it falls over this time. Um, you know, that that's when you need to kind of step in and say, hey, look, I, I know this is, you know, th this is where your fun comes from and I, I want you to have fun, but you got to let other people play the game too. You got to let other people have their, their time in the sun. An example of this, um, and, and I don't want to speak ill of the show because, uh, you know, Tim has been fantastic to me. Um, just, you know, a great friend, a great mentor, uh, someone I've learned a lot from and someone who makes a product that I really enjoy. But a, a, an example of this kind of run amok, in my honest opinion is in in this current season of Knights and Nerds um, in the God's Eye campaign. I think uh, Thaddeus 
has a little bit of a problem as far as monopolizing time. And some of this is down to the, you know, particular voice that uh, Matt Orton has decided to can I, give his character. It's a, it's a voice that's very foreign to his own. It's a, you know, he's a Canadian guy doing a U.S. Southern accent, so there's a lot of hesitation and a lot of, you know, space in his sentences where his, his speeches seem even longer because he's having to concentrate so hard on doing this voice. But also, I find in a lot of situations on the show, and again, this isn't meant as a knock on Matt personally, or on the show as a whole, I love Knights and Nerds, um, but there are a lot of times where Thaddeus kind of takes over the show, and I, as a listener, am going, God, is he done? Can we... Can can we move this along? Can you know I've got you know, I've got other podcasts to listen to. Can 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 we wrap this up? So uh, a lot of this, you know, it, it it's just a matter of kind of, you know, being aware of other people at the table and being aware of uh, you know, situations that pop up where you're kind of talking over people, you're monopolizing time at the table, on down the line. Um, you know, all, all that stuff. It's, you know, it, it's something to be aware of as a, as a player. It's something I need to be aware of as a player and as a GM. Um, and again, it's it's... Usually it's not going to be a terrible, difficult conversation. It's just a matter of, you know, pull someone aside and say, hey, I don't know if you realize you're doing this, but, you know, you're doing this. You guys, give me just one second. I need to plug my phone in. Alrighty, so, with that said, uh, let's talk a little bit about mechanics and, uh, you know, how the mechanics can help us address the situation of charisma being overly dominant and, uh, you know, overly emphasized in these kind of social role-playing experiences. So let's... Mosey on over to screen share. Alrighty. So, what are we looking at here? This is the player's handbook. It is page 195. And this is about combat. This outlines the combat rules. And what this talks about here is rolling a 1 or a 20. Uh, these are the crit rules. The critical hit and the critical miss. And what this says is, in combat... I'll read it verbatim. Rolling 1 or 20. Sometimes fate blesses or curses a combatant, causing the novice to hit and the veteran to miss. 
If the d20 roll for an attack is a 20, the attack hits regardless of any modifiers or the target's AC. This is called a critical hit, which is explained later in this chapter. If the d20 roll for an attack is 1, the attack misses regardless of any modifiers or the target's AC. So, again, uh, this is very 5e-centric. This whole conversation is going to be as far as the mechanics. Uh, hopefully there will be some things that you can take into other systems, but a lot of this is going to be very focused on 5th edition D&D. So, as most all of you will be aware, in D&D, if you roll a 20 in combat, you hit. And if you roll a 1, you miss. Uh, even if with your plus 3 weapon and your, you know, 20th level proficiency bonus and your, uh, you know, maxed out strength, you've got a plus 13 to attack. And for some reason, uh, you're swinging on a skeleton at 20th level. If you roll a 1... Even though, with all those modifiers, your total is going to be a 14, you still miss. And if you are a first-level character, uh, let's you're, you're a first-level wizard, out of spells, and you are going to hit a pit fiend with your quarterstaff. If you roll a 20, you hit. Irregardless of everything else. And you deal your 1d6 damage. You get to deal your... Oh, I rolled a 1. So you get to deal your 1, maybe 2 points of uh, bludgeoning damage to the Pit Fiend, who's then going to smack you across the face. But you hit. That is for combat. What a lot of people get wrong... And what I'm going to talk about here real quick is the same does not apply for ability scores. Um, we, as D&D players and as people, you know, very aware of memes, have conditioned ourselves to believe that this number right here, this 1, is always bad, always a failure, and this 20 is always a success. Uh, one thing you'll notice here just as we kind of slowly scroll through here, you know, this talks about modifiers, advantage and disadvantage, your proficiency bonus, ability checks, contests, skills. No mention at all of crits. There is no such thing, rules as written, as a critical success or failure with ability scores. The DC is the DC. So if you are completely untrained in, let's say, uh, acrobatics, and you need to jump from one rooftop to a higher rooftop, uh, you've got like a negative modifier to strength. Let's say you, you have an eight strength. So this would be athletics, not uh, acrobatics. You, have, you need to make an athletics check to jump up to a higher rooftop and pull yourself up. And let's say it's really high up. You need to jump, uh, like, I don't even, 
you need to jump 20 feet off the ground. Uh, you know, running jump. Straight up there. With your 8 strength. And let's say, like, here. I'm going to roll this. Let's see what pops up. 17. That's a good roll. But for the sake of argument, let's say you roll a 20. The DC to do that, let's, you know, for the sake of argument, is uh, 25. Which is listed over here under typical difficulty classes as very hard. With your minus one to strength, even with a 20, you don't meet that DC. You fail. Uh, so it doesn't matter that you rolled a 20 in that case. Rules is written, you fail. Now, what a lot of uh, GMs will do is have that be success. I think that's wrong. I, I don't think you should necessarily do it that way. Um, what I would have that do is be kind of a uh, a mild failure in that case. Because you rolled as high as you possibly could, but you don't quite hit the DC. So what that would be uh, in this case, let's say you're not the first person jumping. So your wizard with an eight strength runs and jumps, and they almost make it. They almost get that ledge, and they're about to fall, but at the last minute, uh, an NPC or one of the PCs reaches down and grabs their hand. And you're able to pull them up. That's acceptable. You know, you're moving forward, but you're not kind of breaking reality. You're not breaking the rules of the game as they are, you know, written out here in the book. And ultimately, uh, that's important. I know a lot of people are, you know, very, you know, they, they care very much about the rule of cool and making players, you know, feel like they're succeeding. Uh, and, you know, obviously you want things to move forward. Obviously you don't want to bog the game down in if you keep failing, uh, you, you know, nothing's going to happen. You, you want to fail forward, like in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, as Matt Colville gives the example of, as far as failing forward. Indiana Jones escaping from that temple is a man failing forward. Um... So you want to do that. Um, but you don't want to... You, you shouldn't break the game to do that. And, and that does, in a way, kind of break the game in a lot of ways. And when you establish that the game can be broken in those ways, then it's not that difficult to rationalize. Well, if the wizard... Uh, didn't quite make the DC for that leap, but you made him succeed anyway because he rolled a 20. You know, I, I didn't quite make the DC for that uh, persuasion check to get the king to hand over his crown, uh, but I did roll a 20. So, you know, pay up. So it's important to remember that. The the crit does not exist, rules is written, uh, as ability checks. So that's that's just, you know, one thing we need to kind of get out in the open as we begin here. Now, one thing that I want to address, uh, 
while talking about, you know, charisma specifically and how, uh, you know, different players will react, one of the things that kind of makes charisma checks so broken in a lot of games is the mind control aspect. Uh, so, you know, you can see you can see the roles right here. You've got uh, under charisma, deception, intimidation, performance, persuasion, or basically mind control, mind control, uh, whether or not you melted their faces with your song, slash mind control if you are disguised, and mind control, the way that a lot of people use them. Um, and what a lot of this doesn't take into account is the fact that certain things just aren't going to happen. A big example of this is sexual attraction. Not everyone can be convinced to hop into bed with everyone. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, this is the behavior of very disruptive players. Uh, the, this kind of obsession with, uh, you know, sexual conquest in D&D. &D. Um, and I don't want to get... I don't want to talk too much about this because it's, it's a weird and kind of uncomfortable topic. And I've made it very clear that I don't want to roleplay sexual situations with my players. And I tell them this up front. You know, don't don't try to make me roleplay, uh, you know, intercourse with your character. It's not going to happen. Um, but... In certain situations, you as the dungeon master will need to decide how an NPC or a villain perceives the players. And with major NPCs or, you know, wild cards, to use the Savage Worlds parlance, I really like that term. So you'll probably hear me say it a lot, wild cards. Uh, it is perfectly valid, and I would expect... Uh, the dungeon master to decide beforehand, is this a character who can be seduced? Is this a character with a weakness for a pretty face? Uh, is this someone who can be bribed? Someone who, uh, you know, can be intimidated, uh, deceived easily? What are this character's weaknesses? What are their flaws? Uh, is there any way that this character... Uh, could be, you know, leveraged into seeing the player side of things with a with a good enough dice roll. Also, what is this major NPC, this wild card's perception of the players? And this can change over time depending on what the players do. Uh, the the benevolent king who was going to be a friendly NPC, if your characters are, if your sorry your party is a bunch of murder hobos. He may turn into an antagonist, uh, because these murder hobos are going around murdering everyone in his kingdom. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm not going to, you know, he's he is a benevolent king, but you guys are being a bunch of assholes. So here come the the knights. Uh, they're after you. The, the, the king wants you guys dead. And any any, you know, work that you do to try to convince the king... Uh, that, that you're, you know, well-meaning, good-natured, good-hearted adventurers is probably going to blow up in your face. 
Uh, so at that point, you know, being friendly with your persuasion checks, uh, probably not going to work out well for you. For everyone else, though, uh, you know, how do you determine, you know, the random NPC, the, the again, the meme about the, the goblin NPC in the tavern who you just put there to fill the room? When they go up to him and start, you know, talking to, to that random goblin who you didn't even bother to name, how does he react to the players? Well, let me introduce you to something from my professional world, uh, the world of sales, the 80-20 rule, or the 10-80-10 rule, which is more accurate. In sales, what this means is that, you know, 80% of people are going to be completely neutral, completely on the fence, you know, they don't care one way or another about you, what you're selling, whatever. 20% are going to have very strong feelings. Usually it's, you know, 10% are going to be, you know, super excited to talk to you, super happy. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to be very interested in what you have to say. And then another 10%, maybe they had a bad day. Uh, they don't like your stupid face. Uh, you have the same name as their ex. Uh, they hate your company. They're mad that you're not giving them technical support. Whatever it is, but they're going to be super hostile towards you. You can bring this into role-playing. In fact, you should. And there's one very simple way to do this. Let me introduce you to my friends, the D100. You have these. They come in every dice set. 2D10. And they are not used very often in 5th edition, so a lot of people forget about them. But, you know, D10 or D100 percentile dice? Valuable tool in this case. Because it's a very simple process. You just make yourself a little table. And this is actually not a new concept. This I took from Savage Worlds. Um, specifically, the Deadlands book has a whole section on, you know, how, how do people perceive your party? And you roll randomly. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this 108010 rule and we're going to turn it into a table. So 1 through 10, uh, they don't like the party. They have heard all kinds of negative things. You know, they, they don't particularly care for adventurers, whatever it is. You as dungeon master should be creative enough to come up with something. But whoever they're talking to, this random NPC does not like the party. 11 through 89, completely neutral. They could go one way or the other. 90 through 100, positive outlook. Positive view, excited to talk to them. And again, what this means is up to you. As far as, you know, being persuaded by charisma-based checks... Um... I would say characters with a pot or yeah NPCs with a positive outlook probably don't need any kind of persuading or cajoling unless the players really do something to upset them or are asking them to do something against their nature. Um, negative outlook is going to be very hard to persuade them and successful persuasion will likely just move them from hateful to neutral 
anyone in the middle, those are going to be your standard checks. Those are going to be your, uh, like, I don't know, probably 15 to 20 as far as DC goes, depending on how extreme the ask is. So, random uh, NPC that your players are approaching. When they say, we're walking up to him, go ahead, roll your D100. An 11. I rolled a 10 and a 1, so that's an 11. They're going to be neutral. If you want to get granular, you can say that, you know, the closer you get to 10, the more kind of negative the uh, the reception will be. They're neutral, but, you know, they, they've heard some not nice things. Uh, whereas if you roll... A 57, they're going to be a little bit closer to the positive. Still somewhere in the middle, though. Not not quite sure how to take these people. So it's, you know, it's just a simple dice roll. D100, you've got a set, use it. And the same, you can do the same thing with sexual attraction. Uh, 108010. You know, so the, the bard wants to seduce the tavern wench. Oh, God. I literally... We're, we're talking about the bard seducing a tavern wench, and I literally rolled a 69. <sighs> Probability is a hilarious thing sometimes. But anyway, with a 69, she's going to be neutral, although not for long. Oof, I just gave myself the douche chills. But yeah, let's roll again. See if we get something less humorous. 88. She is very, very, like, she, she's pretty close there to being like, yeah, him. You know, she's interested. She thinks he's cute. A, a lot of this can, can be settled with a dice roll. Um... And then if, let's say, for example, here, I'll roll again. Uh, oh, that's a 99. So, yeah, she's ready to hop into bed to him, with him. Let's say, for the sake of argument, I roll a 9. Um, you know, she... She's not interested. She, she's, not, she's not into the bard. Uh, so, in that case, even if the bard rolls a 20 on a persuasion... Say, hey, you know, uh, hey, pretty mama, won't you dance with me? The smartest thing you ever did was take a chance with me. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you my butterfly, sugar, baby. She's not having it. She is not into crazy town. Uh, so, yeah. Hit the road, Jack. Honestly, it's it's that simple. Um, and don't be afraid to break it out. Don't don't be afraid to uh, to use that. Now, last thing I want to talk about here is uh, role play sections with non charisma based characters. Uh, you know, sections of the game where there's lots of role play going on, where you know usually your fighter. Your barbarian stack dice. The wizard might be able to contribute, you know, every now and then. 
but for the most part uh the uh the wizard or sorry the 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 bard and the paladin are having the most fun the the barbarian and the fighter are you know stacking dice the thief might be looking for what he can steal how do you get these people to contribute to role playing uh one great way and this involves you know players giving backstories focus role play in certain aspects on these characters have the barbarian in a situation where roleplay directly affects them. Someone uh, is directly walking up to the barbarian saying, hey, we don't want your kind in this town. Uh, you know, kind of giving them the, the John Rambo treatment. The, you know, hey, you, you out. How is the uh, barbarian going to deal with that? That's roleplay that specifically involves them. Or, uh, you know, let's say you're bringing in something from the Barbarian's backstory. Uh, let's, you know, Conan the Barbarian from the movie. Uh, you know, Conan's walking through town and he sees James Earl Jones' character. How is Conan going to react? Uh, you know, this is, a ki this is the guy who killed his mother. How is Conan going to react? What's he going to do? That is roleplay that involves the Barbarian. And you need to make sure that every character at the table gets that to some degree. I like, as a dungeon master, to get backstories from the players so that I can pull their backstories into the game and tailor each game to these players. So I'll pull in, you know, little bits and pieces of everyone's backstory and weave them together and sometimes it's contrived sometimes it's you know the the villain from everyone's past who killed their mother hamster uh sibling betrayed them they're all forming some kind of like legion of uh legion of doom <laughs> to take down these players for whatever reason coincidentally just happens to be you know all the lifelong enemies of these five people. But D&D &D is contrived and fun that way. So, you know, it doesn't matter. Just do it. Um, and aside from that, even in situations that don't directly involve these players, um, you know, let's say... You know, you're, you're working on something from, like, the wizard's backstory. But it includes uh, information that would pertain specifically to uh, the cleric's god. Any religion or information that that cleric would have uh, will contribute towards higher roles. Uh, so, basically... You know, you need to make a persuasion check against this guy who is very devoutly uh, religious to the same god as this cleric. Uh, the cleric will get advantage on that persuasion check. In my opinion, that should happen. Uh, if it's military matters, and the fighter, you know, is not proficient in history, doesn't have a high intelligence, if their background is soldier... 
they should have advantage. And in some cases, if it deals specifically with people the fighter knew, uh, a time where the fighter was active in the military, any of that stuff, I'd say they don't even need to roll at all. They just know it and can share that information and spread it and use it to their advantage. So, you know, utilizing characters backgrounds and there's you know there's a wealth of backgrounds some of them include contacts uh like criminals criminal background characters usually have uh, some kind of contact that they are associated with um a, a great example of this in the uh water deep game that i played in uh kevin one of my favorite players at the table kevin he was playing a fighter named winslow and Winslow was a Battlemaster fighter, but Winslow also had a lot of contacts throughout Waterdeep. He knew a lot of people, and that, you know, helped us in a lot of situations. That Winslow had this, you know, wealth of contacts, all these people that he knew that we could interact with. And that made a lot of the situations where Winslow wasn't able to, like, kick in a door and cut someone's head off. Situations where he could still interact with the story and play and have fun. Now, in addition to this, we have to remember to treat the other mental stats as viable roleplay stats. This one is purely the fault of GMs. Uh, this one is laid at our feet. Where oftentimes, and I'm going to zoom in here on these, uh, these skills so that you guys can see clearly what we are dealing with here when it comes to the skills that fall under these uh, these stats. Oftentimes, when it comes to roleplay, GMs get in the headspace of, uh, these are all going to be charisma-based checks. So, you know, you better let the paladin or the bard or the warlock do the talking. There are plenty of role-play situations where intelligence and wisdom can also uh, come into play. The big one for wisdom is going to be insight, and you know, perception is going to be another one as well. Intelligence, uh, you know, arcana, history, investigation, religion. Those should all, at some point, interact with, uh, you know, role-play. And, and be relevant in roleplay. So, as an example here, uh, at North Texas RPG Con, I played in a, uh, a playtest that was run by Alex Kamer. In uh, one particular portion of the game, we were impersonating kind of the secret police of uh, El Tabar. And instead of having the Charisma characters kind of lead the charge, the wizard had led the charge. And, you know, we did this because the wizard was intelligent and would be able to kind of fill out the paperwork. And so when it comes time for the paperwork to be filled out, the wizard is kind of forging it, but more so just, you know, filling out the form. And 
Alex called for an intelligence check. Not a deception check, not a performance check, but intelligence. Like specifically history. And, uh, you know, because of the wizard's high intelligence, we were able to succeed. We didn't have to roll any deception or anything. We just filled out the paperwork. That is a perfect example of, you know, a shortcoming that I have. Where, you know, when it comes to social interactions, I'm focused just on these charisma stats. And just on the charisma skills. There are so many more, you know, skills that I can bring in. And even when it comes to, uh, like, you know, characters that are very physically skilled, I am more than willing. The, here, the help action, or the assist... go down to here working together sometimes two or more characters can team up to attempt a task uh, character can only provide help if the task is one that he or she could attempt alone so you can't do this with lock picking but let's say uh, let's say the bard is trying to intimidate someone with you know their high charisma some of this is going to be on the GM a lot of this is going to be on the player but if the barbarian is engaged in playing and paying attention, while the uh, while the bard is trying to intimidate, uh, the barbarian can say, "All right, uh, you know, Grumish stands behind uh, the bard here, and he uh, you know puts his hand very pointedly on the hilt of his axe, and he you know puts the other hand on his hip." And he flexes his chest and he, you know, pulls back his shoulders and he stares down. He does this. Right behind the bard as he's rolling the intimidation check. Uh, by help action rules, uh, the bard gets advantage. So at that point, you know, boom, rolling with advantage. There you go. And in that way, the barbarian has contributed in some way to the intimidation check. So let's scroll back up here. And let's see, is there anything else that I need to mention here? No. Honestly, that is it as far as the uh, you know non-charisma characters are concerned uh, with roleplay. Don't, uh, don't let them become bored. Let them, you know, ma make sure they're involved. Let them know, hey, your character can do something in this situation. You know this piece of information. This has to do with your backstory. Uh, this is something you have knowledge of. Or at the very least, you are big and scary. You can help, uh, you know, you can help the, the wizard talk down the shopkeeper as far as, you know, pricing out your, uh, pricing out the, the material components for the spells. There you go. Now, it's not just contingent on, you know, whether or not the charisma is high. And this way, parties that don't have a charismatic, uh, 
player, her charismatic character, can still get by in roleplay situations. No charisma, no problem. Use something else. So yeah, that is, in my opinion, why I think charisma is overrated. It's not mind control. Uh, it's not a skip content button. It doesn't have to be disruptive. It's just another tool in the tool belt. It's one that's often over-relied on, and uh, GMs, we need to be better about not, uh, you know, letting it become so much of a crutch for roleplay. We need to remind our players, you know, it's not the all-powerful charisma. It's just another thing, and if you know you're not gonna you're not gonna convince someone to do something against their nature. Um, you're not basically going to be casting a mind control spell without expending a spell slot. And by the way, the the spells that control minds usually involve some kind of save when you're forcing a creature to do something against their nature. So keep that in mind as well. And then when it comes to, you know, people who love their charisma characters, um, it's great that you have fun that way, but remember other people at the table. Uh, give other people the chance to speak and have fun and play the game their way. And give them, you know, their own little moments in the sun. So that's really it. Uh, that is my take on charisma. Why it's overrated and why, you know, we need to be better about roleplay. And what stats we use uh, when it comes to roleplay. So yeah, let's go back over to Solo as we uh, wrap this up here. Alrighty. Well, guys, like I said, that is it as far as talking about roleplay and charisma. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in today. I hope you learned something. Or, you know, I hope I uh, showed you a new way of doing things. I'm going to stop doing that because it's making a lot of noise. Um, and if I didn't, you know, I hope you agree with me. I hope this is something you realize, and I hope you enjoyed, you know, hearing me kind of come to these conclusions. So, uh, yeah, that's going to do it for tonight's episode. Just to let you guys know what's coming up uh, in July. Let's see. Uh, it's looking like on July 5th, I'm going to have Jeff Telanian on to talk about Hyperborea, 3rd edition. The uh, The Kickstarter should be starting then. Uh, he might have to do later in July. I will keep you guys posted on that. But that's what it's looking like right now. And then the week after that, uh, Eric Tenkar is going to be on, uh, which I'm excited for. Tenkar's Tavern, uh, if anyone is unfamiliar with it, is a great role-playing show. Uh, Eric does a lot of great research. Uh, you know, he, he's talked about on a show, you know, being a professional investigator. A lot of that comes through in the way that he presents RPG news. So it'll be cool to uh, to talk to him about that and, you know, his methodology when it comes to breaking down rumor and innuendo and getting to what ultimately ends up being the truth uh, when it comes to rumor and innuendo within the RPG world, especially recently. We're going to talk a lot about the TSR stuff with him. Or at least a little bit. Since he already did like a full episode on that. 
So that's what's coming up. Uh, obviously, you know, towards the end of July, uh, we're going to do some actual play content on here. It's probably going to be every other week, uh, but we'll see. And of course, I've got a collaboration coming up both on their channel and hopefully here with the Spoken Token podcast. I'm recording with them in July. I'm already doing an actual play with them, uh, with the legendary Shag as our GM. Uh, so that'll be a ton of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. So guys, until then, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.